From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There were a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salek. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. So, the speech that was intended to relaunch and reset Boris Johnson's agenda made on a rather grey day in Dudley in the West Midlands, a town that historically was Labour and turned fully Conservative in the 2019 election. It was tagged as the Prime Minister moving from channelling Churchill to channelling FDR, a way out of the virus crisis that involved building an awful lot of building. Yes, he really was balancing a lot of interest there, talking about building back better, greener, bolder, quicker, all of the adverbs you can imagine. Uh, he assured it he wasn't a communist. That was quite a striking line, wasn't it? Who was saying he was? And then he wants to heal all the yawning gaps between the best and the rest, as it were. A lot of nods to those new converts, I suppose you could call them, those seats that turned blue at the last election. Uh, there will be houses and hospitals built, he says. But he will get rid of the so-called mute counting red tape of planning delays so yeah that was a rather nice line wasn't it you can kind of imagine the uh, the newts being counted as a big issue <laughs> in in housing projects across the country but he certainly gave the suggestion that this was the moment where he was opening the floodgates of all the talent that had been shown uh, while people were looking after people like him in dealing with the crisis uh, yeah, and at the same time, just really trying to keep everybody on board. So we'll dig into that a bit. First, let's have a listen to the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. We must work fast because we've already seen the vertiginous drop in GDP. And we know that people are worried now about their jobs and their businesses. And we're waiting as if between the flash of lightning and the thunderclap with our hearts in our mouths, for the full economic reverberations to appear. And so we must use this moment now, this interval, to plan our response and to fix, of course, the problems that were most brutally illuminated in that COVID lightning flash. The problems in our social care system, the parts of government that seemed to respond so sluggishly, so that sometimes it seemed like that recurring bad dream when you're telling your feet to run and your feet won't move. And yet we must also go further and realise that if we are to recover fully, if we're to deal with the coming economic aftershock, then this COVID crisis 
is also the moment to address the problems in our country that we have failed to tackle for decades. Because it's one of the most extraordinary features of the UK. In so many ways, the greatest place on earth that we tolerate such yawning gaps between the best and the rest. We have some of the best and most productive companies in the world, and yet we are not as nationally productive as many of our global competitors. We have the world's most brilliant medical minds, the world's best pharmaceutical companies, our doctors, our treatments are the best in the world. And yet we have so many millions who have to wait for too long to see their GP even before the new waiting lists produced by the crisis. We have umpteen fantastic, globally outstanding universities. And yet too many degree courses are not now delivering value. And for a century, we've failed to invest enough in further education and give young people the practical training and further education they need. We have a, a capital city. London was, is, will be, in so many ways, the capital of the world. Great respect to Andy. Theatre, finance, tech, restaurants, you name it. London leads the world. And yet too many parts of our amazing country have felt left behind, neglected, unloved, as though someone had taken a strategic decision that their fate did not matter as much as the metropolis. So I want you to know that this government not only has a vision to change this country for the better, we have a mission to unite and to level up. And it's the mission on which we were elected last year, and we have a plan. And in advancing that plan now, I just serve notice that we will not be responding to this crisis with what people call austerity. We're not going to cheese pair our way out of trouble because the world has moved on since 2008. And we not only face a new and in some ways a far bigger challenge, and I can tell everybody, businesses, that next week the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, will be setting out our immediate plan to support the economy through the the first phase of the recovery. But this moment also gives us a much greater chance to be radical and to do things differently, to build back better and to build back bolder. And so we will be doubling down on our strategy. We will double down on leveling up, if you can make sense of that. And when I say level up, I don't mean, I don't mean attacking our great companies or I don't mean impeding the success of, of London, far from it, or launching some punitive raid on the wealth creators. I don't believe in tearing people down any more than I believe in tearing down statues that are part of our heritage, let alone a statue of our greatest wartime leader. I believe in building people up, giving everyone growing up in this country the opportunity they need. Whoever you are, whatever your ethnicity, whatever your background, and there are certain things that are indispensable for that opportunity. Hospital you're born in, schools you go to, the safety of the streets where you grow up. And this government has not forgotten that we were elected to build 40 new hospitals, and we will. Matt Hancock is setting out the list in the next few days, and that is just the beginning we will continue and step up the biggest ever program of funding the NHS. 
And we won't wait to fix the problems of social care that every government has flunked for the last 30 years. We will end the injustice that some people have to sell their homes to finance the cost of their care, while others don't. And we're finalizing our plans, and we will build a cross-party consensus. We want to look after those who have looked after us. And at the same time, we will build the foundations now for future prosperity to make this country a Britain that is fully independent and self-governing for the first time in 45 years, the most attractive place to live, to invest, to set up a company with the most motivated and highly skilled workforce. And so we're investing massively now in education with over 14 billion pounds for primary and secondary education between now and 2023. And today with a new 10-year school building program Begin, beginning now with £1 billion for the first 50 schools and a vast uh, £1.5 billion programme for refurbishing our uh, dilapidated FE sector. Dilapidated in many places, not here, of course. Uh, because it's time. It's time that the system recognised that talent and genius are expressed as much by hand and by eye as they are by a spreadsheet or an essay. So when I say unite and level up, when I say build up people and build up talent, I want to end the current injustice. That means a pupil from a London state school is now 50% more likely to go to a top university than a pupil from the West Midlands. And that is not only unjust, it is such a waste of human talent. We will unleash the potential of the entire country. And that means basic things, cracking down, again, on the crime that blights too many of our streets and too many lives. And we'll get on with our plan to recruit 20,000 more police officers. We've already found 3,000, already recruited 3,000. And I thank the police again for everything they're doing and have done in this crisis. And we will back our police all the way and give our justice system the powers we need to end the lunacy that stops us, for instance, deporting some violent offenders, just as we've already stopped the automatic early release of terrorists. We'll make this country safer. We will build the hospitals, build the schools, the colleges. But we will also build back greener and build a more beautiful Britain. And that was the Prime Minister Boris Johnson speaking in Dudley just under an hour ago uh, with an awful lot of talk about buildings then. Yeah, I get the sense that it was more political than it was economic. There's not a lot in there that wasn't pledged last year in the manifesto. When pushed on that, the Prime Minister said it was all about speeding all of this up. Time is money was the phrase he used when it comes to implementing all of the things they promised in the manifesto. Of course, a lot of it targeted at the Midlands, at the north of England, all of these people who gave their vote to the Conservatives, many of them for the first time. So he'll be keeping uh, a big focus on them. Of course, one eye on the rest of the party yeah. as well, because you need to, to, to please the broad church so as not to get into trouble.
Well, indeed, and not insignificantly, speaking there in Dudley, Dudley North was a seat that had historically been Labour and turned Conservative at the last election. Very important. I mean, it's not the North, it's the Midlands, but we've been talking about the Red Wall in the North, and this was a key block in that notional, if somewhat non-geographic wall, and he wants to make sure that focus is still there. Keeps talking about inequality, yeah. about closing the gap. Why should uh, people from the West Midlands have less of a chance of going to the great universities than anyone else in the country. Doesn't make sense, he's saying, and there are ways forward to change it. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Dig into this with Joey Jones, Strategic Counsel at Cicero AMO and former spokesperson for Theresa May. Joey, perhaps one of the most striking things here is that there's not too much new that wasn't in the manifesto. No, that's right. Actually, um, not just the fact that uh, in some ways, as you say, uh, the speech, the substance of the speech was a rehash of the, the manifesto, but also just some of the framing, some of the levers that Boris Johnson uh, is looking to pull feel very familiar. There have been moments during this crisis where we have all been confronted by things that we never would have imagined. You know, the furlough scheme, uh, particularly, and some of the scale of the lending that the government uh, has uh, authorised is just gobsmacking. Well, I don't think that this speech uh, falls into that bracket. We've all seen prime ministers in the past do speeches where they say that they're frustrated by the pace of the ability to uh, construct infrastructure or to build more houses and they want to reform planning, they want to cut red tape. These are all very familiar refrains uh, from uh, British prime ministers. The only thing really that has changed is obviously the context, the emergency situation in which we find ourselves, which I guess might persuade us as observers that Boris Johnson has uh, has a, a greater ability because of the imperative that he actually delivers on that rhetoric in a way that some of his predecessors have struggled to. Yeah, Joe, it was very significant that he had to reassure everyone he wasn't a communist in the middle of all that. And given how much the government has done, uh, policies that some said would, would have embarrassed even uh, a Jeremy Corbyn administration in terms of the sheer extent of government involvement is quite significant. Is it, though, a moment where you can say this is the turnaround, this is the, the handbrake turn, this is, I don't know, perhaps the putting the foot on the accelerator that changes the way in which we've seen recently, at least, a government that looks pretty cack-handed? I think that was, without doubt, the ambition from the speech, that it should be viewed as a, a turning point in, in two ways. One, narrowly, from the point of view of uh, Whitehall and Downing Street communications, that they've been on the back foot, particularly, obviously, through Boris Johnson's own incapacity when he was uh, at death's door and being treated for COVID-19, and then through the whole Dominic Cummings um, 
distraction and uh, whether or not he breached the lockdown rules and, uh, and all the rest of it. And this should be an opportunity for them to recover a more... Um, a more proactive stance but then more broadly it was it was framed as a, a point at which lockdown begins to be eased and so we can contemplate what the shape of a post-covid economy might be might look like i think the problem is that what was what what was designed as a a sort of quite upbeat and forward-looking speech has been clouded by the events in leicester I mean, the fact that this simultaneously uh, we are looking at a reimposition of lockdown uh, and we're looking at a lot of criticism about whether or not this is something that could have been addressed earlier and the fact that we're going to have halting steps or even backward steps in, in certain areas over the next few months just means that the tonality of the speech is not as the prime minister would have wished. Does it sort of invalidate what he's saying? He's talking about speed more than anything else, really wanting to crack on. But if we are going to get these resurgences, second waves, whatever you want to call them, presumably that is going to delay things. Uh, Undoubtedly. Uh, I mean, he's talking about uh, just take one area, housing. Um, He's saying that we need to build far, far more houses. uh, And yet, you know, figures published today um, have shown, I think, a drop off of 30 or 40 percent in, in in houses being constructed. Now, a lot of that is very understandable, um, but the problem is that it's hard to see how you're going to get a real turnaround in the, in, of the nature that the prime minister wants to see just being conjured up, particularly against a backdrop of ongoing uh, economic concern and, and potentially um, re-impositions of lockdown restrictions. Now, Joey, I mean, you were in a position in your previous existence with Theresa May where I guess you were involved in the putting together of speeches like this, key moments, points where the Prime Minister wanted to turn the corner, wanted to push forward. I mean, what? give us a sense of the kind of uh, of thought that goes into putting something like to get together uh, and perhaps what you want to kind of pull through with the wording of the speech to try and grab the moment. Uh I think that with, with Boris Johnson's speeches, let's not forget, this is, there's a two sides to this uh, communications coin. Boris Johnson is very much about tonality, rhetoric, trying to set the mood music. And next week, Rishi Sunak is going to do a, a, a speech laying out, if you like, the, the mechanics that would, uh, that would underpin uh, that vision. Now, you know, different politicians will, will strike these, uh, these things in, in different ways. But clearly, Boris Johnson views himself as the sort of cheerleader, the person that sets the, sets the tune. Um, and I think, as I, uh, as I said, the, the difficulty from his point of view is that, that these events are not all uh, subject to his own control and certainly not the subject to the control of his communications advisors. He could not necessarily have foreseen that this speech would, be co- would coincide with the first time that we've actually had to see uh, lockdown restrictions that had been alleviated being reimposed. But I do think that that's significant in terms of the way in which the country will receive it. And then in terms of how he's paying for it, he's ruled out austerity once again. We've heard that lots of times. He said he won't raise taxes, at least in the near term. Does that mean higher debt for longer? Uh, it has to, surely. I think that the expectation 
have been that, where, that whatever statement Rishi Sunak makes now is the sort of the positive news, the good news, the, uh, what, the, the, what the government is going to do to uh, try to move the dial, uh, and the tough stuff, uh, i.e. how we're going to pay for it all, will come further down the track, probably in a, bu- you know, in a budget in, in the autumn. But it can't be put off uh, forever, one would imagine. There are, some, there are some tough choices all around. I mean, just one, if I can just pick one out. The Prime Minister said that he wants to build faster and build greener. I'm not quite sure whether he's going to be able to persuade, particularly uh, the environmental lobby around the people that protect the green belt, for example, that you can do both. He may have to make a choice there. If he's saying that he wants to cut through red tape, cut through planning restrictions, uh, and uh, undermine the arguments of the the NIMBYs, if you like, the not not in my backyard, uh, that that have bedeviled so many, particularly conservative prime ministers over the years, then then I think that that will mean that he'll have to jettison some of the ecological underpinnings that, uh, that, that on on the face of it, he he wants to, he's saying that he wants to secure himself. So I think that it's going to be hard for him to have it both ways in that particular area and in a range of others, as, as you've intimated. Yeah, the newt counters aren't likely to be terribly happy about getting rid of, of that aspect of it, if indeed that is part of it. Um, but, but, Jay, I mean, there's an interesting division here, which is this was a speech made in Dudley, uh, one place where the Conservatives did extremely well. In fact, they have all the four seats in the area now. They got the last one in 2019. Uh, it's not necessarily a place where you'd assume conservatism, traditional conservatism, would be very much at the core. And the kind of things he's doing are not necessarily likely to appeal, perhaps, to core conservatives anyway. Um, Are there just too many constituencies to please? Um, Well, I think that an an emblematic constituency, and this is not, I'm not talking about um, an individual constituency, but a a body of uh, voters, conservative voters, for for, for the Prime Minister, the, the emblematic core that he uh, that have become his own are that rip previous red wall so the previous labor supporting voters that have come over to the conservatives those are the ones that surely are at the greatest uh, the, where, where the risk of uh, of not retaining those votes is is most profound so he has to do more to shore that up and to persuade them that the promises that were made through the election campaign uh, will be delivered upon and that's why he's he's gone to that particular uh, constituency and that's why a lot of the you know he's talking about um uh, d- doubling down on levelling up, uh, that the, the he's not walking away from uh, those uh, constituencies that have been offered such a lot and that where the, the follow-through has not yet, uh, partly because of the you know unavoidable situation through the lockdown, but the follow-through hasn't yet been in evidence. More broadly then, how strong is that 80-seat majority looking in Parliament? Very strong, um, but but that uh, shouldn't you know um, we shouldn't fool ourselves. There is there is certainly anxiety on the Conservative benches about the performance of government. The the cabinet overall has not looked incredibly robust. I think there've been there've been some good reviews for the for the Chancellor's performance over the over the past couple a couple of months. Who was somebody that was largely unknown in the, to the wider wider country but but matt hancock has been consistently uh criticized and a lot of cabinet ministers were not even put up for these downing street press conferences presumably because the downing street communications officials didn't have confidence in their ability to 
project the government's uh, arguments. So there are frailties there, but obviously what they're, they're endeavouring to do at the moment is, is, is rebound from that, partly through the speech we've seen today, but also through some of the structural changes and, uh, uh, and putting loyalists in core positions that is starting to feed through uh, with the resignation of the Cabinet Secretary and National Security Advisor, uh, Mark Sedwell. That's definitely an attempt by Downing Street to tighten the grip. And are we going to see a change of personnel, do you think? Is a reshuffle around the corner as well? Um, I, I, there, there, are, there are some individuals where there, there is clearly uh, has, have been muttering and there's been a, a degree of acrimony and bad blood around, around the Cabinet table. It really depends whether or not uh, Boris Johnson or perhaps you know, Dominic Cummings is feeling sufficiently vengeful that they want to uh, that, that, that they feel that that, that merits uh, a bloodletting, which otherwise, I think, to be honest, would be a bit of a distraction. It's not as though there are tons and tons of people, uh, talented people, that are just on the edges that are queuing up to take those, those positions on. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.